When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast, where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me, writing solo this week is Mr. Will the Thrill. So wait a minute, I'm writing solo? Well, I mean, you're, me? I mean, you're writing solo with me. Ah, okay. Very well, I accept. Look, here's the thing, okay? <laughs> I am heavily medicated right now, all right? It's been I'm, a week. I have bronchitis, and I am on antibiotics, steroids, all kinds of fantastic things. Uh, you're lucky that this script got written. And we've had a parade of contractors in and out of our house over the last week and a half. Yes. And um, my brother's out of this uh, episode this week for two reasons. Number one, I don't think this is exactly his wheelhouse, is it? Uh, no, based on what I heard about the Slapnuts episode, Broadway may not be his forte. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, if you uh, missed the last episode, we did a fantastic Slap Nuts, uh, Slap Those Nuts uh, game show. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, and of course, I like uh, beating the crap out of the boys. Makes me feel uh, strong. I understand it was not close. It was not. Yeah, we I missed you. I was, of course, you. not there. Yeah. Yeah, we missed you. We missed you. Yeah. I mean, if you want to leave again, I'm fine. Oh, well, that's good to know. I'm just going to sit here and enjoy the wine I opened by accident. Then. Uh, I guess we're lucky because this week, I don't believe we had anyone pass, except for, was it Raquel Welch or was that last week? Because I, I have no time as a circle. I, I'm pretty sure that was this week when she passed away. Was it? I believe so. Yeah, it was really sad. Yeah, it was. Um, Because I discovered that she actually took over the role of Victor Victoria from Julie Andrews during uh, a, a time where she had to take time off to get surgery because it affected her vocal cords. Yeah, which I, I had no idea and she even played the role. So that was a surprise to me. Yeah, I learned it from a TikTok. <laughs> there was like mm -hmm. a whole Tony thing. I mean, we're, we're talking about um, Broadway's Stephen Sondheim, if you guys... Uh, are just joining us. And of course, why are you doing it on episode four? Go back. I have more you have to catch up on. So, uh, so TikTok has been heavy on the Broadway algorithm for me, which I'm completely fine with. Mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah, it was, um, it was weird. It was a very interesting thing. And apparently four weeks went by 
And then uh, Liza Minnelli took over the role for four weeks. And I learned why Julie Andrews was not an EGOT was because when her, she was the only one from the show to get um, an, an, a Tony nomination. And okay. she was like, this isn't fair. And so she rescinded her Tony nomination. And I mean, I admire that, but she should have Tony. I mean, let's be honest. Dude, seriously, yeah. make this woman an EGOT, please. Uh, the other thing that came out in Broadway News, since, uh, you know, we don't have, you know, anything to really report on, was uh, Bad Cinderella. Yeah, that's that happened. Which apparently lives up to its name. It, it is a musical. Um, <laughs> there are people on stage in costume. Yes. I have seen everything. This The show... It, it's it's giving me Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark vibes without Ooh. all the injuries. Just wait. Uh, I think the only thing that's injured is probably going to be Andrew Lloyd Webber's pride. Because no, I think he'll be fine. I have a feeling he will. He will not be phased. Say la vie, I guess. This is exactly. this yeah. is me on so much medication. Say la bad Cinderella. Yeah, hang on. I have like um, four beverages in front of me. It's crazy. We got to start cleaning your stuff up. Yeah, my office is a bit of a wreck these days. It's okay. We were using your, we lovingly referred to your office as craft services while our yeah. kitchen was being renovated. I, I had a delightful setup, I'll have you know. <laughs> um, the other thing is if you guys are planning to go to uh, Rock and Pod weekend up in Nashville, we will be there. You can still get your tickets. Yes, you um, I believe they start at, they they there's a, a myriad of it's it's kind of it's con paying. What is that? How do you say that? What's those words? Con paying? That sounds like you it's know, a scam. No, no, no. Like convention. Con. Like con. Oh, okay. The different like, tiers. Like uh the Rock God VIP full weekend pass is sold out. Um the Rockstar mm. VIP, which is for Friday and Saturday, that's sold out. I think you can get Rock Fan VIP, which is expo only for 50. Uh Rock Rock and Pod. Expo Early Admission, which is on Saturday the 18th, uh, mm. which is 30 bucks. But like the podcast... It's one day only, right? Uh, no, it's two days. It's uh, March 17th through the 19th. No, no, that pass I'm talking about. I'm it's not I'm not really sure. Mm. <laughs> I have not been made aware of the ticket tiering. Mm. But, uh, but yeah, so we're going to be there. All the other awesome Pantheon podcast reps are going to be there. Yeah. There's some um, really cool people that are going to be showing up at Rock and Pod. Um, so, you know, don't miss this opportunity. It's going to be a lot of fun. And you can find out all about Rock and Pod at NashvilleRockInPodExpo.com. I'm going to put that information in the show notes. And um, with that, I guess we're going to take our first short sponsor break. And then we're going to jump into the life of Stephen Sondheim Part 4. Okie doke. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. All right, and we're back. I hope you guys have found some amazing deals. And uh, let's just start off with Stephen Sondheim Part 4. Uh, if you guys remember, we last left on company. I really hope you enjoyed the not getting married today that uh, we left you off with. It's so good. The incomparable Madeline Kahn. Yeah, well, he had set out to do what he had wanted to do with company. So he had started a debate that would continue for the next 25 years. When it arrived in London of January of 1972, it was discussed with a serious... Uh, fervor that was only extended to new novels and plays. So in London, they have the East End and the West End. And that's where, those are our Broadways. So really Broadway here is, I think, a little bit different than East End, West End, because we do get their musicals, but they take plays very seriously. Oh yeah, for sure. And so for them, musicals are kind of, I think, more novel. That might have changed, but like in the 70s, Mm-hmm. You know, that was kind of the the thinking. So now I say a name that I don't, I don't, I don't like this guy. And it's not anything. It's not, he's not Phil Collins. Okay. Yeah. Cameron McIntosh was then at the start of what would be a very successful career of being a producer. I don't personally like him as a producer because he changed the staging in Phantom and uh, he did a lot of other stuff like with staging and, and, and that. I just, once he got his hand on it, I just, I think it changed a little bit and I didn't didn't like it. Mm. Yeah. And I always, you know, so many shows have come out of that, that West End. I mean, one of the most notable, I think is Rocky Horror, obviously that was one that was running on the West End. And um, I think War Horse too was one that came out of there too. I mean, the the, the pedigree there is undeniable. That is for 100% sure. And Equus too, right? That's right. Yeah, Equus was one of them too. Yeah. I mean, again, it's, it's, I think in some ways it's a little bit more experimental than our Broadway. Like they're willing to take a, a few more chances, but that that could change, of course. Yeah, and I think think that's why right now we're seeing the resurgence. Well, not even the resurgence. I think we're seeing a surge of IP that was previously a different medium, like yes. Mean Girls, Jagged Little Pill, Bad Cinderella. Like we're seeing these <laughs> things that have been made before turned into musicals. I will say, like the one that does excite me the most is dropping on like June twenty third. Is going to be um, Back to the Future. Yeah, so you know, you showed you showed me the. Uh... I don't want to say trailer. Is that the right word? It's just trailer. Yeah, mm. just trailer. I like it. I, I'm. I'd be excited. Is great. Oh yeah. Well, I don't know what their cast is. The trailer that we saw was actually from the West End version. Okay. So, but the West End version's cast looked awesome. They looked just like their characters. They sure did. Now, um, so my personal belief on Cameron McIntosh is neither here nor there. He's very successful at what he does, and I guess people like him. 
I just, mm-hmm. I'm, I have not been impressed with what he's done. But he said that when Company arrived at Her Majesty's Theater, it was the first American show that he had seen with an original American cast. I was infatuated with musical theater and beside myself because I could not yet afford to see a Broadway show or go to America. So this is the first time a whole company had come over since the original cast of Oklahoma had come to Drury Lane straight after the war. So I fought my way to opening night. I stood and I cheered three times during the performances. Absolutely hysterical. And yet I hadn't liked the show. Seriously, that's probably the only thing that me and Cameron McIntosh can agree on. <laughs> but see, I, it's not just me. Like there's something about company that's kind of like off-putting, but you're like, the music's amazing. I, was say, I feel like it's one of those shows that's almost better. The, the sum of the parts beats the whole. You know, um, the individual numbers are great. I think it's got some stellar performances. You string them together and eh, yeah, you've got a show. But, eh, you know, I, I feel like, again, the, the highlights are the best part of the whole thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you get by on not getting married today alone. Mm-hmm. And alive. And I mean. Yeah. All right. So I, I want to clear a few things up because I can just hear people screaming from the rafters. <laughs> Can't tell. It's just me screaming from the rafters. That's okay. Um, I'm sure someone will join you. Um, when I was giving the rundown of the shows, I put Company after Follies, which I don't think is the exact order that they came in. Company was released in 1970 and Follies was released in 71. But since mm-hmm. we covered Follies last week, we're actually going to talk about his next project, which was a little night music. But yeah. we're going to take a detour into Stephen's personal life since we haven't checked in with his mom for a while. So let's do that. Probably a good idea based on what you told me earlier. Uh, We'll get there. Yeah. Since we haven't checked in with his mom, um, as far as his mother was concerned, concerned, Stephen had long since concluded that screaming with laughter was the best defense against her. So while living in California, Foxy had claimed to work for Jane Wyman and Barbara Stanwyck as their interior decorators. Her son remained distant, but was on reasonably cordial terms with her in those days. He recalled that not long after she went on to live on the West Coast, that she had had a big birthday for one of her round numbers, you know, 40, okay. 50, 60. Yeah. One of the, the, the 10 years. Yeah. Um, but her stepfather had bought him a plane ticket and they went to celebrate. After a decade of marriage, her husband passed away and Foxy returned to live in New York. She actually wanted to live with Stephen, but he was not having that. And uh, dude, I get it. Uh, So she took up an apartment on the east side of 64th and New York Avenue. Now, as long as Steve could remember, his mother was a habitual liar. She would lie about anything. She would basically lie for the sake of lying to the point where Stephen would joke that on a rainy day, someone would ask her about the weather. She'd look outside and say it was sunny. (laughs) There was no no purpose for her lying. She was just a compulsive liar. But despite it all, she went to every one of Stephen's shows. She boasted about him constantly. And although her friends knew that their relationship was very strained, she had a picture that she sat on her bedside table. Uh, And when the subject of Stephen's sexuality, well, I mean, it was just never discussed. It was the... Yeah. Yeah. it It was the 1970s, and that really wasn't something that you talked about yet, you know? And there weren't that many people that were shouting it from the rooftops. But yeah, it doesn't sound like the kind of family that would have a, a warm and fuzzy conversation about that matter. But even if he was out, she would have probably denied it. 
Like she would have just pretended mm. like everything was normal, fine. He was just not finding the right girl. That's just kind of who Foxy was. She was just like, you know, she would deny it till the end or lie about it. And that was just the kind of person she was. <laughs> now that a story that that sounds very much like medical malpractice, Foxy was seeing a young doctor and apparently he had been supplying her with sleeping pills. Oh boy. But knowing better, he had actually given her placebos with just like a couple of sleeping pills in the bottle. So one night, she took the whole bottle. Oh, geez. But because most of them were placebo, she only maybe took 8 to 12 pills instead of the 40, which would have killed her. Now, how Prince was currently living with Foxy, and on that same morning, Prince called Steve in New York, told him what happened to his mom, and he took the first flight out. When he got there, his mom met him in the driveway saying that she was so, so sorry. And she said, oh, Steve, I'm so grateful, sorry. She had actually rehearsed the line and then screwed it up since the title of the song that she was trying to make a reference to was from the show Company. And it was called Sorry Grateful. Wow. So she had like planned out this whole thing, including using Stephen's own words. (laughs) Oh, jeez. I mean, composer Ned Raman recalled meeting Steve at a party in 1965 in which they both got very drunk They left at the same time, shared an elevator, shared a taxi, and then shared a drink at Steve's. Okay. He's calling him Steve, but it's Steven. It doesn't fit. Yeah, he's not a Steve. It just doesn't fit. Steven. Steven. It's very, he's, I feel, he's posh. Um, He does have an air about him, yes. So um, apparently something happened, and I will let your imagination do the rest. But as time went on, Stephen made a name for himself as a composer and their paths crossed again. Ultimately, he was invited to a party, and this is Ned, who was invited to a party at Stephen's house. And upon entering, Ned said, before we go any further, you know that I've been here before. Shall we leave it at that? And uh, luckily, after getting over that bump, they actually became very good friends. Well, upon reading his biography, it doesn't look like anything else happened, but Ned did say that there was something very sexy about Stephen's huffiness. His huffiness. Yes. Most people would agree that he was, uh, he, he put up a wall. He was, I think, very much a hindrance. You know, we would call people like Stephen introvert today. He's an introverted genius, mm-hmm. um, which it's interesting to find an introvert in the theater. Like, that's just not something that you really come across. Usually it's a lot of, and look, when I say what I'm about to say, please know that I literally was going to audition for a play this week. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still very much in love with theater. I'm very much a theater kid. I love Broadway. I love acting. You guys know I was an actor. So when I say this, please know that it comes from love and knowing, uh, which is the theater is a lot of pick me people. So it's, it's, it's very weird to find someone who is an introvert, but I am also an introvert. Well, I think, I think everyone's a blend of both, you know, and has those traits, I think. Some aspects of theater can lend itself to the introverted personality. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think overtly the look is, look at me on stage, you know? But I don't think that's the whole thing. No, because a lot of people actually went as so far as to call him scary. Well, I would agree with that based on the footage I've seen. Elaine Stritch said he's yeah. scary. <clears throat> I think he's I very close to a genius, if not a genius. And it's hard to be around people like that. They're mind-boggling. Their mm-hmm. sound is so explosive and there is a kind of dangerous quietness about him. 
Which is funny because I think what I'm, you're referring to is the video that we talked about uh, that we watched the other day where it was the rehearsal for the college students doing Not Getting <laughs> Married Today, yep. where he has just got this look of sadistic pleasure. Oh, he's loving it. Yeah. While these, he is loving these, it. these characters do vocal gymnastics, he's just like, mm-hmm. well, go he's ahead. Like, how, Try to sing it. How can I make this harder? <laughs> hmm. Those meeting him for the first time. Invariably describe the way that he would flutter his eyelashes and hold his head to one side while speaking with his eyes closed, which was his way of thinking, he would explain. But he would mm. look everywhere except for the person that he was talking to. Oh, that would, that would drive me nuts. I'm one of those people that if you're talking to me and you're not looking at me, it drives me insane. I, I have a problem looking at people's eyes when I speak to them. I will look at their mouth. But you're looking at them. I, I had a boss who would look like off to one side when he was talking to somebody. It drove me up the wall. Okay. Maybe not. I mean, you know what, though? With so much neurodivergence in the world, I get it. Mm. Like, I understand now that there are people like that. That's how they cope. Like, that's how they're able to communicate is by well, maybe. doing. Now, one quality about this was anyone that had worked with him would say that they always knew when he was telling the truth and that he wasn't ever exaggerating. He was not the one to kind of give in to the whims of exaggeration. And that was pretty much the consensus of everyone who knew him. Mm. But one quality that actually makes me love Stephen even more was that he was like, I get this dude so much. He was really fearful of being at other people's mercy. Hmm. He was always tense when somebody else was driving. Does that sound familiar? Oh, yes. Pretty much so. And he hated to fly. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there you go. I can see why you have a lot in common. Yeah. One of the stories that Ned told was that he was heading to Canada for an opening and Stephen smoked weed all the way to the airport. <laughs> Well, it was the 70s, so I mean... <laughs> but I bring this part of his personality up because look at the characters that he helped create. Like, it was Madame Rose and in, in Gypsy and Robert and company and eventually what we'll get to in this episode is Benjamin Barker. Which I am looking Todd, forward to, yes. Which all those characters hate being at somebody else's mercy and are demanding control. Hmm. So... Um, now, around this time, and we talked about this, uh, I believe, two episodes ago, where he had tried uh, therapy, I think in the 50s or maybe 66, somewhere around there, maybe 57. I have a vague recollection of that. But uh, he went back into analysis this time with a doctor named Milton Horowitz, whose particular interest is the relationship between the creative and the neurosis, which I didn't even know was a thing. But mm. it makes sense. And Stephen stayed with him for the next 25 years. He found that experience extremely valuable to find out that you're not the only one in the world that goes through something, which, of course, is like something that everybody goes through. Uh, one of the quotes says, you think that I'm the only one who likes to suck eggs. And then you find out that everyone likes to suck eggs. I'm the only one who's never fallen in love, etc. It was just nice for him to know that other people had had that shared experience so it wasn't just a he thing, you know? And isn't it interesting how at that point the individual was referred to as an analyst, whereas now it's a therapist? I just find that terminology fascinating. Fair point. I, I was reading the book and I'm like, okay, so that's... Because remember, there's a movie called Analyze This. Mm-hmm. 
and analyze that was the sequel. <laughs> but but yeah, therapist versus analyst, there's something inherent about the nature of the relationship that I find very interesting. And it's something Stevens actually used in his works. I mean, company being one of them. You know, in I'm Not Getting Married, she says, I went to see my analyst. And he said, you know, and I, I think to some degree, we're going to see some characters that are in a way going through different types of of therapy as they go through their, their stories. Yeah, but I think with Horowitz, he he found a, like a niche that helped him have a breakthrough. Possibly. Because like he would tell Milton something and expecting him to say, oh my gosh, that's so weird. I've never heard that. But like after 25 years, you've kind of heard everything. Hmm. So he just, he Stephen said, I just realized that I was just any other neurotic fellow. Yeah, well. Yeah. And even after the sexual revolution of the 60s, Stephen said that I realized that the trouble was that I was a lot different and it included the homosexuality, but you know, it was not about being open to let someone else in my life. I thought it was about homosexuality, but when homosexuality became, I'm going to say lingua franca. Okay. I don't, I, I, I probably should have looked this word up, but again, yeah. the, the previous bronchitis, I think it just means when it became normal, it didn't mm. affect him at all. So that's oh, just wow. a little bit of insight on what Stephen was going through in his life. So. Following Follies, uh, Stephen and Prince created a delectable show called A Little Night Music, which, mm. which was a script by Hugh Wheeler, based on an Ingmar Bergman film called Smiles of a Summer Night, which was from 1955. Composed okay. in almost three-quarter time, the show is comprised of a cast of characters who are paired in unlikely matches that will eventually sort themselves out. Um, Sondheim has categorized it as whipped cream and knives. <laughs> Interesting. It's just random, and I loved it. Sondheim's Sin and the Clowns is mm. probably the best known song from this show. It won a Grammy Award in 1975 for Song of the Year, all thanks to a rendition by Judy Collins. Oh, yeah. I, I, there are so many versions of that song done by so many people, and I almost forget that's the that's like the one that put it on the map, you know? Yeah. Auditions for the show began in spring of 1972. True to practice, Prince not looking for a musical comedy to star with huge voices. In any event, uh, stars with the statue of Ethel Merman were rapidly dwindling in numbers, so much as actors could sing if they had to. That mm. So basically what happened was there was a shift in casting because of one man that was apparently a menace, which is <laughs> Rex Harrison oh, as, yes. as Professor Higgins in My Fair Lady. A quote, notorious pain in the ass, if I remember correctly. Yeah, thank you, Lindsay Ellis. God, I miss uh, you. Please come back. Who is surely a menace and a menace we need. Now, given the choice when it came to casting after Rex Harrison, people would rather have a good actor that could croak out a song than a crack actor that could sing. Mm -hmm. So it came down to if you could have a great actor that could pretty much talk their way through a, a song, it made casting the role easier, but it also made for writing the roles harder because now you had to basically step down. I think there has now been a shift okay. back to form because look at someone like Ariana DeBose or mm -hmm. um, Home Wilkinson or... Literally, Jeremy Jordan. That th these are all fantastic actors and amazing singers. So I think 
this might just be relegated to stunt casting now, but even then, when they do stunt casting, there has to be a certain level of talent, which I think that was really (laughs) explored kind of ingeniously in the TV show Smash because they tried stunt casting for the part of Marilyn Monroe and they brought in the actress Uma Thurman but she played somebody mm-hmm. else. She was a different character. She wasn't playing Uma Thurman, but Uma Thurman was in the producers and we know that she could actually belt. So, but they, they touched on Stunkin. So that's a part that made, made that role so funny is that she can perform, she can sing. And in that, in Smash, she just played this, first of all, despicable character, but one who was really inept on stage. So it was kind of fun to watch. Yeah, but that's that was kind of the idea of stunt casting was like, let's get a big name in here. Can they sing it? I've heard that they could sing, sort of, but I feel like even now there's been a shift that they have to be kind of a triple threat. Mm. So, I think so. When they came to casting, they had found Tammy Grimes to play Desiree because she was in the unsinkable Molly Brown, but they actually ended up going with an English film actress. Now, when they were casting for the role of the Madame, it was a little bit more difficult. They had a British actress named. Hermione Gingold, who wanted to play the part so badly that she actually showed up to the audition, which is weird because that is not something that she had done in years. They had thought that she was entirely wrong for the part because she was a comedian and he wanted her humor to flow from the character as opposed to being manufactured from the character. But Hermione was so sure that she was right for the part that she showed up the audition unannounced and she went down and sang a song and she said, I vaguely remembered. And then Steve said, now would you please sing something else? Yes. And she didn't, she said, I'm sorry, I, I only know the one song, but I'll sing it again if you like. So she did and uh, she got the part. It's funny because she had been performing for decades, including only, including performing for royalty, but she had been so, so nervous that she literally forgot every other piece of music in the world. Yeah. They make that same joke in Captain America. Remember when he's on stage and like, bring the girls back. He's like, I think I only know the one song, but. (laughs) Well, so she was nervous. And the reason why was because she said that Stephen Sondheim and Hal Prince were too much for me. And the only one that had frightened me even more was Noel Coward. Yeah. I heard he was quite intimidating. That's what I've heard. All right, another audition that didn't go very well was named Charlotte Moore, who was appearing in a play in Hartford when she was invited to audition for Little Night Music. So she brought a piece of sheet music and a song that she thought she knew, and she walked out onto the set of Follies, which is where they were holding the auditions. She handed over the music, and she began to sing a song from Carousel called If I Loved You, just into this black hole. The more she sang, the more unsure she became. And then finally, her voice just trailed off and she started to cry. First thing Steve said was, why on earth did you pick the hardest song in the world in the English language to sing? And then she said that they were incredibly kind and sweet and they invited her to try again in a couple of weeks, but she decided against it. So that's sad. Critics unanimously admired the score when it came out. Time Magazine called it a beauty in an exceedingly distinguished career. The discipline imposed by the forms used to seem to have released something in Mr. Sondheim. His music has never been so eloquent before. 
individual melodies lilt, soar, tantalize, and dazzle, but never descend into lasciviousness. That's some fancy words to say. You, oh, yeah, you, that's a lasciviousness. Your music sounds pretty, sir. <laughs> um, okay. Ba, 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 ba. Okay. All right. A Little Night Music ran at the Schubert Theater on Broadway for 17 months and for 601 performances. With his usual cautiousness, Sondheim pronounced it the least poorly received of all of my shows at the time. The least poorly received. Okay, that's an accolade. <laughs> and it made a pretty good profit for its backers. It was being cited as an example of the way in which art and commercialization could coexist on Broadway. So it's no great surprise when A Little Night Music received 12 nominations for the 1973 Tony Awards. Its main competitor, and this is a big one, was Pippin. Oh, yeah. I keep forgetting about Pippin. Pippin and A Little Night Music, I always forget about. It's not good. It's, well, it's good. It's just not for you. That's fair. Because it came out, when it came out, it's may, it, was, it was A Little Night Music's main competitor. A Little Night Music got 12 nominations. Pippin got 11. Not too shabby. No. Hey, LD, I hate to step in here, but we are going to take a short break for our sponsors. Look at that. We're back. All right, let's hop back in to the life and times of Stephen Sondheim. This work with music by Stephen Swartz, which I keep forgetting he goes all the way back because... He he did Wicked, and we were just listening to that uh, video essay on how Stephen Schwartz was brought down by Dirty Puppets. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Avenue Q. And that I was just a big... keep forgetting. Was there like that campaign that they ran that was highly uh, scrutinized? Yeah, and they actually, because of that campaign that they did for the Tonys, they actually changed what you could do as far as campaigning for a Tony. Like, because of what Avenue Q did, they had to change the rules. I mean, honestly, look at Avenue Q. They changed, it was changing the rules even before then. I mean, yeah. that was shown with body puppets. See, I yeah. use the word body. Very good. I'm proud of you. I try. So, uh, Pippin was by Stephen Swartz, and it was a allegory about a man's search for identity and was transformed by its director, who is also the choreographer, which is a name that we will I, we'll never cover on this podcast, unfortunately. I don't think. Okay. Bob Fosse. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. So Bob Fosse transformed the show into a kaleidoscopic salute to show business. During the ceremony, each musical took home five awards. Uh, Little Night Music won for Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, Best Book for Hugh Wheeler, Costume Designs, and it gave Steve his third Tony for Best Score, which was at the time... A record. So he's got three now. Yes. And uh, Rex Harrison uh, actually opened up the envelope <laughs> when it was revealed that A Little Night Music had won the Tony for the best musical and it was the overall winner of the night. Very nice. Yeah. While Sondheim admirers stood in awe of his accomplishments, his detractors claimed that his work was too bitter to win wide popularity and that his music was too sophisticated for popular success. That next production, A Little Night Music, shut everyone up. Yeah. It was elegant. It was waltz-based. It had humor. It had charm. Um, people on both sides of the Atlantic loved it. And it's 
one of the big takeaway songs from the show, Send mm-hmm. in the Clowns, became an unexpected pop standard. So I think we know what's going to happen right now. Mm-hmm. We're going to listen to Send in the Clowns. Oh, but which version? I'm going to figure that out right now. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's a the Catherine Zeta-Jones one where she's angry. So angry. Yeah. You know what? Let's listen to the Judy Collins version. Nice. So uh, right now we're going to listen to the Judy Collins version of Send in the Clowns from A Little Night Music.
to be clouds Well, maybe next year And we're back. That is a good, I mean, there's a tenderness to that version that I think can easily get lost in performing a song. Not that I've tried to perform it because that would be, that would be a disaster. Oh yeah. I love you, but you have a terrible singing voice. No, I'd be the first to admit it. I am not a singer. I can do karaoke, but I'm not a singer. Exactly. Same. I'm in the same boat. It's Mm -hmm. fine. We've got, we've got other strengths like making an amazing podcast. That you want to give money to. If you find (laughs) that we're doing a good job. We're not done yet. Stop it. I've got like all 12 of our listeners to. (laughs) (laughs) If all 12 of our listeners gave us $1. We go Chick-fil-A. Heck yeah. All right. Now we had talked about Stephen Sondheim and Bert Shevelov and nobody uh, emailed me. So I'm assuming that that we're just going to go with that pronunciation. Shevelov? Shevelov. But I'm just going to call him Bert so I can avoid that confrontation. So we talked about them in working together in a previous episode and they found themselves working together very often in the days after a little night music. Uh, Stephen has sent him an urgent appeal for help in the spring of 1973 when they had an evening of tribute to his work and was running into difficulties and a grateful exchange saw Stephen agreeing to help Bert. And that was for him to helm one of the roles not as a uh, lyricist and not as a composer, but as a role in a Tin Pan Alley play directed by George Kaufman called June Moon with Susan Sarandon and Jake Cassidy. And he actually wanted Stephen for one of those roles. He actually confessed that later the experience had been absolutely embarrassing, but he did it because Bert was such a good friend. Got it. He also agreed to contribute to the words and music to a revival of one of Bert's earliest successes, which was his pre-war version of Aristophanes' frogs in the Yale swimming pool. That is a series of words that I did not string together in a fever dream of antibiotics. I was going to say, is that the cold medicine talking? No, that's true. Nope, nope. There is actually a revival of the pre-war version of Aristophanes frogs in a swimming pool at Yale. Yale, it's an Ivy League school. They row boats and they eat ivy. I don't think they eat the ivy. That would You know what? Stop it. Uh, If you don't uh, know that I'm quoting Empire Records, we don't need to be married. Okay, never mind. I love you. Um, The original production had been such a success that even the times, like the newspaper that reported on the news and that people bought Mm. wrote an article about it. And there was even some talk of taking it to Broadway, but unfortunately, a little thing called World War II happened. Mm. And um, so it it didn't, you know, the world had other things to worry about. Yeah, a world war is something that's starting to distract the populace. Yeah. So um, the artistic director for Yale Repertory Theater asked Bert to do it again. So he had turned to Stephen for help to rewrite it because 
He was working on a little night music. He had a month to help write for the frogs. And then he turned his first idea for the overture to form which he had called the invocation. Now, that became the invocation and instructions to the audience. And it got the evening off to a flying start. I'm going to play in just a little bit, but it's awesome. But Frogs was uh, inspired by the ancient Greek comic playwright Aristophanes, who was alive around the 5th century BC and set in Hades among a chorus of frogs. Shakespeare and George Bernard Shaw debate the work of dramatists and Shakespeare wins, returns from the dead, and art saves civilization. Hooray! Again, because... I didn't. Story. Yeah. I didn't come up with this again. Okay. <laughs> um, produced in the swimming pool, among the carefree chorus of frogs were actresses Meryl Streep and Sigourney Weaver, and playwright Christopher Durang, and all the students at the Yale Drama School. Good now, lord! And that's a lot of people in one swimming pool. Yeah, How big is. is the swimming pool? I have questions. What is the acoustics like? What What is the sound like in a pool? Because I've only been in an indoor pool where there are children screaming. I have questions. Hang on. All right. Now, in 2004, actor Nathan Lane, who I love, adore, and, you know, Nathan Lane for president, took that 50-minute work and expanded it to a two-hour Broadway production that he starred in with seven songs added <laughs> by Sondheim. My personal favorite thing that someone said that the music and lyrics were by Stephen Sondheim with additional lyrics by William Shakespeare. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> now, just a little backstory on the actual production of Frogs. Of course, it was performed at Yale in the swimming pool and it opened on May 20th, 1974 for eight performances with Burt directing, choreographed by someone named Carmen de Lavaled, Larry Biden, played uh, Dionysus. Was that Bacchus? Yes, Dionysus. Is it Bacchus? Yes, the, and I always forget, the Roman equivalent, I think, is Dionysus, and the Greek is Bacchus. I think, yeah, I think that's it. Okay. Yeah, because it's, Her it's Hercules, Heracles, Zeus, Jupiter, like, it's, Jupiter, I get yeah. I get the names mixed up with which one, but, yeah. Um, Dionysus, Larry Blyden played Dionysus. The piece, of course, used Greek course. Oh, so Greek, it's Greek. There it is. There you go. That's a person. Hey. <laughs> the ensemble then included uh, Yale students, of course, uh, Meryl Streep and Sigourney Weaver, which, by the way, I did not know, A, they went to Yale, and B, I didn't know they went to Yale together, which was I, new I, information. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I heard at one point that they one of them went to Yale, but not both at the same time, which is bananas. That is some graduating class right there. Yeah, it's not. Now, to answer my own question for what I wrote two weeks ago, Sondheim compared the acoustics of the production to putting on a show in a men's urinal. <laughs> Quite an analogy. He has a way with words. Yes, he does. Uh, obviously, we, we've got four episodes on his music alone <laughs> right now, and I don't think he's even middle-aged yet. So we're getting there. Uh, there are two recordings of the score available, both starring Nathan Lane. The first is a performance with Lane by Brian Stokes Mitchell and Davis Gaines, which was released in 2001, uh, which also, which contains a complete recording of Sondheim's even Primrose songs. So it's kind of like a dual thing. 
Mm-hmm. And then the other one is the 2004 production starring Nathan Lane and Roger Bart, and that was released by PS Classics. A recurring segment entitled Would You Rather on the podcast, Comedy Bang Bang, uses the entirety of the opening fanfare as a theme, and a running gag involves the guest complaining about the length and the host, Scott Ackerman, berating them for interrupting it. <laughs> so that's <laughs> like... So they have taken this and it's kind of like our federally mandated man for man's reference to the podcast. That has been going for years now. I'm just saying without my brother here because he's so excited about it. He does, I mean. But you know what? We're still going to do it. We have to. We're still going to do it. So here we go. Roll that beautiful bean footage. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Tom McGinnis and that was your federally mandated man for man reference of the podcast. I hope you are satisfied. It just doesn't get old. No, never. I could listen to that a million times. I would still love it. Still love it. All right. So why don't we listen to the first song? And um, that song is the invocation and instruction to the audience. And this is the only official recording that I could find other than that live performance. So this is actually, I believe, the 2004 uh, release with Roger Bart and Nathan Lane. Because okay. I will tell you this, because they make reference to cell phones in this song. Hmm. And there weren't cell phones in 1974. So uh, unfortunately, that- there isn't a recording in the men's urinal. <laughs> like Stephen's that one is lost to time. <laughs> that is lost to time. But I cannot, it's, it's a very funny song and I didn't want our audience to miss it. So... And uh, here we go from Frogs. This is Invocation and Instruction to the Audience. Gods of the theater, smile on us. You who sit up there, stern in judgment, smile on us. You who look down on actors. And who doesn't? Bless this yearly festival and smile on us. We offer you song and dance. We offer you rites and revels. We offer you grace and beauty. Smile on us for this while. Gods of the theater, smile on us. You who sit out there stern in judgment, smile on us. We offer you song and dance. We offer you rights we and We offer rebels. you gods we and heroes. We offer you jokes and insults. We offer you pains and pageants. Bacchanals and social comment. Bless our play and smile. Yes. But first, some do's and don'ts. Mostly don'ts. Please don't cough. It tends to throw the actors off. Have some respect for Aristophanes and please don't cough. Don't say what to every line you think you haven't got. And if you're in a snit because you've missed the plot, of which I must admit there's not an awful lot, still don't say what. If you see flaws, please don't drop your jaws, please. No loud guffaws, please. When actors enter late, when there's a pause, please. Lots of applause, please. And we'd appreciate you turning off your cell phones while we wait. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I think it's you. Hello? This really isn't a good time. I said, this really isn't... Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Don't go, oh, 
each time you see an actor that you know. And if you have to use the lounge below, don't wait until we're halfway through the show, especially if you're sitting in the middle of a row. No smokes. No chow. Unwrap the candy wrappers now. When we are waxing humorous, please don't wane. The jokes are obscure but numerous. We'll explain. When we are waxing serious, try not to laugh. It starts when we get imperious. And if you're in doubt, don't query us. We'll signal you when we're serious. It's in the second half. Do not intrude, please. When someone's nude, please. She's there for mood, please. And mustn't be embraced. If we are crude, please don't come unglued, please. Let's not be too straight-laced. The author's reputation wasn't based on taste. So please, don't fart. There's very little air in this is art. And if you feel offended, don't lose heart. That's what the man intended. He was smart. When, when everything's upended, we can all depart. And now... But first... We That was fun. It is. And I actually have a fun fact. Fun fact. About our, our friend Roger Bart that you saw there. There is one fun fact that unites the two of us, LD. Roger Bart was born on September 29th <gasps> in Norwalk, Connecticut. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. My birthday, your birthplace. My birth city, yeah. Fun. That was a fun fact. Look at us. Yes. And he was also in Hostel too. so... Which one was he? Was he the dude that, uh, mm -hmm. oh. It's an unfortunate end, yes. Yeah, that poor guy. Mm -hmm. I don't have him, but neither does he. Not, yeah, not according to that story. So um, during this time, he actually co-wrote a, 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 words are hard. So <laughs> he co-wrote the screenplay for the fiendishly intricate murder mystery, The Last of Sheila in 1973. And from 1973 to 1981, uh, Sondheim served as the president of the Dramatist Guild, the professional associate for playwrights, theatrical composers, and lyricists. So uh, he clearly had the respect of his peers during nice. this time. And I think like if you listen to uh, the invocation and instruction to the audience, you can hear that charm just oozing through. Like mm -hmm. he does these like little triptych word plays and like makes these unexpected rhymes and it's just delightful. It's just, He's having fun writing it. He yeah. is. And that's why I think I love him. Um, so his next production that we're only just going to touch on a little bit was in 1976. And it was a startling change of pace for him, which was Pacific Overtones. Uh, he created that with playwright John Waitman. The musical is about the opening of Japan in the mid-19th century by Commodore Matthew Perry. Not the Matthew Perry from Friends. Stop it. Stop it. I, I know what you're thinking. Nope. Didn't nope. go there. In an era when the Asian nation was stepping out into the world, and it was inspired by haiku, kabuki theater, and Asian tonalities, which his score is apparently unlike anything he had ever written before or since. So that that is a, a very bright spot for, for him. Now, touching back on his mom, Foxy continued to be in the background of his life and made periodic demands for his attention 
and consideration and love using methods that had long ceased to prompt any kind of reaction from her son. But things weren't great between them. And I mean, like, obviously not. Sometime in the 70s, she was to go to a hospital and have a pacemaker installed. And she had absolutely convinced herself that it was full-on open-heart surgery with a 100% chance of her dying. So <laughs> she she sat down and she wrote Stephen a letter, made sure that it was in his hands. And he she was told, you know, he, he was told by her, open it up the night before my surgery. And in it, she said, the night before I undergo open-heart surgery, and that was underlined three times, open parentheses, my surgeon's terms, close parentheses, my only regret in life is that I have given you birth. Oh, good Lord. Yeah, so she was a real sweetheart. This reminds me of uh, Jim Croce's dad. Remember that whole saga and his parents? Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, Jim and Stephen seem like such good kids. I'm about to say something mm. about Stephen. So okay. hold that thought, but... He replied with a three-page letter. He wrote down everything that he was feeling, everything that he wasn't able to, to say before. And for him, it was not hard. It kind of flowed out. He said, I don't want to see you anymore. I will continue to support you. And I'll just call you my business manager. That was all. Mm -hmm. I basically, in that letter, he said, you know, like, I'm going to take care of you. But here's why. I'm going to give you what you need in life because what Jewish boy, what good Jewish boy doesn't take care of their mother? You know, I will make sure you have $80,000 because you used to have money and you blew it because you are a poor spender. You made bad decisions and you're a lying liar who lies. That's not actually verbatim. I'm just paraphrasing. Yeah. I'm just paraphrasing. But um, he, he said that the letter was far longer than what I just said. And he did continue to support her. Uh, she had an apartment at 27th and East 56th Street where she was cared for by a registered nurse. And then eventually sometime in the 80s when her health was failing, she was eventually moved into a nursing home. And he, she wanted to move in with Stephen and he was like, no, that's not going to happen. Yeah. But he made sure that she was taken care of. Um, so she moved into a nursing home in Inglewood, New Jersey, and he sold her apartment. Now, yeah. when Stephen was away, in London, and I'm assuming this is in the 80s, his mother passed away. Mm. And he did not return for the funeral. So, gotcha. I mean, just to kind of wrap up, like the thing is, Foxy, relationships with mothers can be hard. And I think that Foxy was suffering from a lot of things. I'm certainly not an analyst or therapist, yeah. so I don't know what it was. But I feel like uh, it was very telling in the first episode where... Stephen's father said, I don't love you, but I'm going to marry you because I need a designer. Yeah, it's all it's just, yes. Not exactly the uh, the warm and fuzzy family that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. So, you know, his, his relationship with his mother was long and complicated. I mean, me and my mother have had vicious texts back and forth, but eventually we make up for it, you know? Yeah, not like that from what I understand. Gee, that's mm. like, oof. No, but we've had definite mother-daughter fights. Sure. And that's why like a movie like Lady Bird mm. or, or even Mamma Mia get to me. <laughs> it's a mother-daughter story. It's like, that affects a woman. <laughs> so now moving on from Foxy, we're going to get to the part where I know you are going to be very happy to talk about. Oh, yes. Let's talk about 
an English playwright named mm-hmm. Christopher Bond. Fair. Who would write a little play about a certain demon barber of Fleet Street. The fact is, throughout history, we aren't able to actually pin down if Sweeney Todd ever existed. Mm-hmm. There was a barber in revolutionary Paris who would cut the throats of his customers, but people didn't know if it was for political reasons or for profit or for what, but his name wasn't Sweeney Todd or Benjamin Barker. There is the Bean family and the head of that was a man named Sawani Bean, I believe. Sawani Bean? Yes. What? (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's how it came up. I don't know, but it was the, it was the father of the Bean family who was a family of robbers in the 16th century Scotland who actually ate their adversaries. So I'm sure that you've heard of like the Donner Party and the Bean family, like... Not the Bean family, no. Okay. I I only vaguely know about them, but they are a real family that that did exist in 16th century Scotland who were cannibals. And... At that time, there was a storied history of theater and cannibalism, like Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus. I mean, who, who yeah. tricks the mother into eating her son served up in meat pies. Yeah, that happens, yeah. Yeah. But Sweeney Todd, the Victorian mass murderer who is unjustly imprisoned and returns to seek out vengeance on his enemies, you really can't find that exact story. Hmm. And there's a great video essay. And if I can remember to put it in the show notes or post it on social media, which you guys know I'm amazing at. I do it all that that is a lie. I'm horrible. Yes. But if I can find it, there's a really great video essay, which actually talks about the history of Sweeney Todd as a story as opposed to a musical. And it does start with a sterilized Victorian popular fiction known as what's called Penny Dreadfuls. Mm-hmm. And it was a story called A String of Pearls, which was published in a weekly magazine during the winter of 19, sorry, of 1846 to 1847. Set in 1785, the story pe- features its principal villain, a certain Sweeney Todd, and includes the plots and elements used upon in later versions. The murderous barber story was turned into a play before the ending had even been revealed in print. So it mm. was kind of like The Godfather in which the studio purchased the rights to the book even before the book was published. Yeah. Like that Mario, does happen sometimes. Yeah, Mario Puzo like sold the rights to the movie even before the book was done. So like mm-hmm. this was happening prior to that. Wow. Um, an expanded edition appeared in 1850 and an American version in 1852 and the new play in 1865. Uh, by the 1870s, Sweeney Todd was a familiar character to most Victorians. The musical was based on the play and that came out in 1973 and introduced the psychological backstory and the motivation to Todd's crimes, which hadn't been presented in the Victorian era writings. In Bond's Hmm. reincarnation, the character Todd was the victim of a ruthless judge who had exiled him to Australia and trigger warning for SA, uh, he raped his young wife, driving her mad. Stephen Sondheim first conceived of a musical version of the story in 1973 after he saw Bond's take on the story at the Theatre Royale Stratford East, which is a very fancy name for a theater. That is Stratford Royale, yes. Oh, it's royal. Very prestigious. Yes. Bond's sophisticated plot and language significantly elevated the lurid nature of the tale. 
uh, Sondheim once observed, it had a weight to it because Bond wrote a certain character in blank verse. He also infused into elements of the Jacobian tragedy and the Count of Monte Cristo. He's able mm. to take all of these desperate elements that had been in existence rather dutifully for a hundred some odd years and make them into a first-rate play. That is high praise coming from Stephen Sondheim. Oh, for sure. Sondheim felt the addition of music would greatly increase the size of the drama, transforming it into a different theatrical experience, saying later, what I did to Chris's play is more than enhance it. I had a feeling it would be a new animal. The effect it had at Stratford, East in London, and had the effect in the Euros Theater in New York are two entirely different events. Even though it's the same play, the effects are different. It was essentially charming over there because they don't take Sweeney Todd seriously. Our production was larger in scope. How Prince gave it an epic sense, a sense that there was a man of some size instead of just a nutcase. The music helps give him that dimension. Music proved to be a key element behind the impact of Sweeney Todd on audiences. Over 80% of the production is set to music is either sung or underscoring dialogue. The score is one of vast structure, each individual part meshed with others for the good of the entire musical machine. Never before or later did Stevens' work utilize music in such an exhaustive capacity to further the purpose of the drama. It's an opera. It is a proper musical. Um, great, great thing. Um, you know, uh, my brother, his beautiful wife is, uh, oh, that was the second reason why my brother's not here. It's his wife's birthday. Oh, yeah. um, so happy birthday. We love you. Um, but he, uh, he is married to one of the most sweetest, most purest, beautiful <laughs> individuals in the world. Like, this world is not good enough for Ash. Like, she's perfect. Mm -hmm. I love her to the moon and back. And let me just tell you, I'm speaking directly to my brother right now, who I know will listen to this episode. You hold on tight to her and you never let her go. She's the best thing that ever happened to you. All right? And if you ever hurt her, I'll break your kneecaps. Mm -hmm. Did I just say all that out loud? Yeah, that was that was the exterior monologue. Oh, oh crap! I said the quiet parts out loud. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, oh, shoot. Anyway, well, here's the thing. Ashley is perfect. She's so sweet. Like she's, she is precious. <laughs> I'm gonna touch on the film version in just a bit. Yeah, I didn't realize it was gonna be so violent. And I took Ashley to this, and the only thing that she says was, "They sang a lot in that movie." Yeah, she doesn't deal well with blood, and that's, I mean, almost cartoonish level of blood. Yeah, there's a lot of blood in that, and I'm, to this day, I like, I will not take Ashley to go see another movie, unless it's like Steel Magnolias, mm -hmm. because I just, I feel like every time I've taken her to the movies, it has been a disaster. Final five, yeah. Yeah. Sondheim decided to pair one of the most nightmarish songs, Sweetie Todd's Epiphany, with a comic relief song called A Little Priest. This pair of songs at the end of Act One were the most significant musical addition which Sondheim made to Bond's version of the story. Now, in the play, Sweeney's mental collapse and the subsequent plan for Mrs. Lovett's meat pies take place in less than half a page of dialogue, no. which is much too quick to get like the full psychological impact of what's actually being said. Mm. So Sondheim's version carefully reveals the developing ideas in Sweeney Todd's and Mrs. Lovett's demented minds. The Sondheim said that Sweeney Todd left his mind almost fully formed. All I, all I wanted to do was sing it. Its content dictated the operatic form, 
but the style took me a little longer to hammer out. What he is basically saying is that you can't just be like, hmm, there's a dead body upstairs. Let's eat it. Like you just can't make that jump. And I, I can totally understand. But if you introduce that idea into a little priest. <laughs> it makes it more uh, pal- palatable. Pal- palatable, yes. <clears throat> but um bum. Sondheim has often said that his Sweeney Todd was about obsession and close friendship, which is true. Like, I believe that mm. it's about it's about trust and it's about a really good friendship and it's about acceptance. Like, if you break it down, yeah. Uh, are they uh, unconventional, murderous, psychotic uh, weirdos? Yes. I mean, yeah. But in the end, why does Benjamin Barker do what he does? Because he loves someone and that love was taken away. And so he's driven mad by a society which has falsely imprisoned him and taken away his perfect marriage. Yeah. Anyway, Todd is driven over the edge by his obsession for Judge Turpin because Judge Turpin wronged him many, many years ago and he is vengeful. Like when you first meet Sweeney in the movie, and I will confess that I've never seen a stage production of it, even though... Really? uh, Yes. I've seen parts. I've seen parts of it, but I've never seen the full thing. But like when we first meet Todd... In the film version, he's on a boat talking to Anthony. And it doesn't establish in the film that he was imprisoned in Australia. Like that's in no mm-hmm. part in the film. So I know it differs from the stage show a little bit. But um, Sondheim first brought the idea for the show to Harold Prince, his frequent collaborator. And of course... Prince was uninterested, feeling that it was simply a melodrama that wasn't very experimental structurally. But of course, Prince soon discovered a metaphor to which to set the show in, (laughs) making what Sondheim had originally envisioned as a a small horror piece into a colossal portrait of the Industrial Revolution and the examination of the great human condition of the time as it was related to men like Sweeney Todd. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mountain out of a molehill, kiddo, and I love it. I'm here Mm -hmm. for it because I have fun with this musical. How's metaphor is that the factory turns out Sweeney Todd's. It turns out soulless, defeated, hopeless people, and that's what the play is to him. Sweeney Todd is a product of that age. I think it's not. Sweeney Todd is a man bent on personal revenge the way we all are in one way or another, and it has nothing whatsoever to do with what the time he lived in as far as I'm concerned. Agreed. Yeah, you could set it at any point in history, and I think it was the hold. You really could. You just have to change things a little bit. But, like, that's what they did with Bad Cinderella. Anyway, I'm sorry. Is that the best example? Just, I'm I'm so hung up on this whole Bad Cinderella thing. It's all they're showing me on my TikTok. (laughs) Now, of course, Sondheim accepted Prince's vision as a different way to do the show and as an opportunity to do the show on a larger scale, knowing that small-scale productions could be done at any point in time. So on the stage of the U.S. Theater in New York, the Tale of Horrors was transformed into a mountain of steel in motion. Prince's scenic metaphor for Sweeney Todd was a 19th-century iron foundry moved from Rhode Island and reassembled on the stage. With critic Jack Kroll aptly describing it as part cathedral, part factory, part prison that dwarfed and degraded the swarming denizens of the lower orders. That is a sentence. It sure is. Of course, when it came to casting, 
Stephen thought that stage veteran Angela Lansbury would add some needed comedy to the grim tale as the lunatic Cockney shopkeeper. Mm-hmm. But it's funny because uh, Angela didn't immediately say yes. She had to be convinced. She was a star. And as she pointed out to Stephen, your show is not called Nellie Lovett. It's called Sweeney Todd and I'm the second banana. Oh, wow. To convince her. I just her, on her charming accent. It can, and I miss her so much. To convince her, Stephen actually auditioned for her, writing a couple of songs, including the delightful A Little Priest, <laughs> and gave her the key to the character, saying, I want Mrs. Lovett to have a musical hall character. Lansbury, who had grown up in British musical halls, got it immediately. Not just a music hall, but a dotty music hall, as she put it. I don't know what that means, but it sounds charming in my head in her voice. Yeah, for some reason, I'm willing to go along with it. I have no clue what she means. Yep. After she was formally confirmed for the role, she realized the opportunity that it afforded her saying that she loved the extraordinary wit and intelligence of Sondheim's lyrics. Canadian actor and singer Len Carew was Sondheim's personal choice to be the tortured barber. In preparation for the role, Len, who was studying with a voice teacher at the time, asked Sondheim what kind of range he needed to have for a role. Uh, Len told him that he was prepared to get Sondheim's a couple octaves to deal with, and Sondheim immediately said, that should be more than sufficient. Hmm. That'll do. Which, fun fact, Len has a birthday one day after me. His birthday is September 30th. Is it really? Yes. I I have a lot of really good people um, that were born near my birthday, and then a character from The Last of Us who died on my birthday. So, R.I.P. Kevin. Oh, that's right, yeah. Kevin? Kevin. Um, Now, while Prince was absorbed in staging the Mammoth production, Angela and Len were left largely on their own when it came to developing their characters, which is not (laughs) something I think you really have when you're doing a production of that scale, but they did it. They worked together on all of their scenes, both of them creative actors who are experienced in giving intense performances. That cuckoo style of playing Mrs. Lovett, that was pretty much Angela. She invented that character, Lynn said. She recalled, I just ran with it. The wide openness of my portrayal had to do with my sink or my swim attitude toward it. I just figured, hell, I've done everything else on Broadway. I just go on with Mrs. Lovett. <laughs> well, I mean... Uh... <laughs> it was said that on opening night, Harold Clerman, the doyen of American theater critics, rushed up to Skylar Chapin, the former general manager of the Metropolitan Opera, demanding to know why he hadn't put it on at the Met. To which Chapin replied, I would I would have put it on like a shot if I'd had the opportunity. There would have been screams and yells, but I wouldn't have given a damn because it's an opera, a modern American opera. <laughs> the show has had tons of revivals and a lot of productions staged. And of course, like I said, there was a feature film adaptation of Sweeney Todd directed by Tim Burton with a screenplay by John Logan, which was released on December 21st, 2007. And of course, it starred Johnny Depp. And Depp received an Oscar nomination and a Golden Globe Award for his performance. Also, um, the late Alan Rickman. I'm getting, I'm getting there. Ah, sorry, I jumped Because you, you gotta chill, man. I'm sorry, I'm excited. Of course, it also had Helena Bottom Carter, who was, I believe, either dating or married to... I think she was Goldie haunting it with uh, Tim Burton. Yeah, and they she were was, an item, but yeah. Yeah, she was actually present, pregnant with his child when she was filming that. Yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah, so she was Mrs. Love and of course, R.I.P. Alan Rickman. Mm. Uh, what a king you were. He just, uh, I miss him. 
There's so many people on this list that I miss. Yeah. Uh, and then he played Judge Turpin. Sasha Baron Cohen, of course, played Senor Pirelli. Uh, and then Jamie Campbell Bauer played Anthony Hope, which you guys mm-hmm. may now know as Vecna from Stranger Things season <laughs> yeah. four. If you've watched the whole season, if not, uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Timothy Spall played the Beatle Bamford, who was... Uh, I do like him as well. Yeah, he's great. I wish he worked so much more because he is just a cool looking dude and he's just got spot on acting skills. He was great in the Harry Potter films. Like, I liked him. Yeah. And his son, Rafe, is in a lot of good stuff too. Really? Yeah, he, he was the, one of the Andes in Hot Fuzz. Oh, the Andes. Yeah, going to the Andes. He was also in, what was that horror movie where they're in the woods and there's the big monster with the antlers? The, the ritual. ritual. Yeah, he was yeah. the main character in that too. Okay, wow. He doesn't seem old enough to have a grown son like that. He's got, I think he's got two or three kids. I think two of them are, are in the industry. But Rafe, I think is, he's at least one I can think of the most credits right now. <laughs> okay. So uh, the film was actually really well received by critics and theater goers and won a Golden Globe for best motion picture, musical, or comedy. Because Golden Globes do their announcements a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So while the original production for Broadway premiered at the U.S. Theater on March 1st, 1979, and it actually closed on June 29th, 1980, after 557 performances and 19 previews. Wow. Of course, it was directed by Hal Prince, costumes by Franny Lee and lighting by Ken Billington. The cast includes Angela Lansbury as Mrs. Lovett, Lynn Carew as Todd. Um, here's my love. Victor Garver was actually Anthony in the original Broadway show. Was he really? Yep. Sarah Rice uh, played Joanna. And Ken Jennings, which jumped out to me. Wait a minute. <laughs> and it, it was not It was not him. Oh, uh, as a character named Tobias. Uh, and then Judge Turpin was played by Edmund Lendick. Uh, so that production was nominated for nine Tony Awards. It won eight of those nine nominations, including Best Musical, Best Book of a Musical, Best Original Score, as well as 11 Drama Desk Awards and the Drama Critics Circle Award for Best Musical. Nice. It went on to be revived twice on Broadway, adapted into that 2000 film, and Coming out tomorrow, I, you know, up, upon this recording, coming out on Sunday will be the newest Broadway production of Sweeney Todd starring Josh Groban and Annalie Ashford. That's a great cast, yeah. So even now, Stephen Sondheim's, one of his greatest plays is being launched on Broadway as we record this, which... I love Josh Groban. He's got a sense of humor about himself. Sure. That makes him so damn charming. <laughs> and then Annalie Ashford, I have loved her since Legally Blonde. Of course, I talk about Smash because this is the like the only series that I get to talk about Smash on. But she was in Smash. She's actually the one that auditions for Bombshell as Marilyn Monroe singing I Want to Be Loved by You in the iconic um, material girl dress. <laughs> you know, gentlemen prefer blonde's dress um and she also plays the same character but becomes a real estate agent but recently she was in a great series that i just don't hear getting enough praise which was welcome to chippendales yeah it's a really good series and i hope it like you know i hope more people watch it and get some some acclaim because it was well done yeah so i'm i'm very excited about this production so hopefully 
we will get up to New York to see it before it closes because I I really want to see a stage production of Sweeney Todd. But this cast seems like it would be excellent because Amelie Ashford has like this beautiful, like almost nasally voice, but there is a charm and perfection to it that just makes me so happy that I think she's going to be incredible. So that's where we're actually going to end this episode. I've got to go med up because uh, it is it is almost bedtime for us over here. Um, so I'm just going to give out our social information and then we will wrap it up. I'm actually going to let Will play Dealer's Choice um, on the final song. I've picked out one, but uh, as long as it's not Greenfinch and Lennon Bird, I'll let you pick the final song. That's the only one that's off the table? Anything by Joanna. <laughs> okay, okay, let's be honest. Anytime she opens yeah, up her mouth, let's yeah, just not do it. It's just a forgettable character. So uh, our social stuff, if you think that we're doing a really good job and you would like to throw some money at us, you can do that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can check us out on Twitter. Really? Uh, why would you? We're not even posting over there anymore, but I like giving it out because I like a sense of stability. It does and exist. It does exist. And you can do that at rock and roll LT. Uh, our Instagram, Rock and Roll Heaven LT. You can check out our Facebook page, which we run rampant over there. We do love it over on Facebook. And thank you to our admin, Thea, who is consistently mm-hmm. posting amazing things. She is just killing it over there. So go show her some love because she is awesome. Uh, so I'm going to say our website. You can check out our ticket. Ticket, 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 lt at gmail.com. And please make sure to check out all of our other awesome Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com. And make sure to come meet us at Rock and Pod, which again is Nashville Rock in Pod Expo.com, where you can find out all the info there. Again, that's Nashville Rock, the letter in Pod Expo.com. You can get all the information over there. And if I went too fast, which I don't think so, I feel like I'm moving in slow motion right now. But anyway, all this information will be in the show notes, including the links to get your tickets to Rock and Pod. Um, again, I'd like to thank everybody for checking in on us this week. Please make sure you check us out next week, where we're going to be talking about, uh, I guess, Stephen Sondheim. Yeah, I, I think that uh, that is something we will cover. All right. So to close us out, Mister Will the Thrill, I'm giving you the opportunity to pick out a song. Now, I will say I picked out a song. Okay. So if you if you if you don't have a song, I've got a song, but I'm I know that this is your favorite, so I wanted to give you that opportunity. There's a few I could go with. I I feel like a little priest is is one of the best, but it's almost overdone, so I'm not going to go in that direction. Uh, I don't know the name of the song, but the one where he's competing with Pirelli is also a good one. Um, yes, I think it's just called the contest. Is it just called the contest? Yeah, that's a great so. one too. Uh, my friend. That my friend is great vocally. But I'm going to, I think, go and pull a slightly unexpected card, a very understated and I think absolutely beautiful song. I want to close out with Pretty Women. Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, you know what? I'm not mad at that. I will tell our audience, you should go listen to The Worst Pies in London because that is a great song. That's a good one too, yeah. So, So many good choices. So we are going with Pretty Women. All right. So uh, from the original Broadway cast because let's be honest, um, any, I could have thrown a penny into Spotify and 
any of the versions you will find are beautiful. So hang on one sec. But I think because I miss Alan Rickman so much, I might actually go for the film version, if that's, that's okay with you. I'm, I'm good with it. So let's take a listen to Alan Rickman and Johnny Depp singing Pretty Women from the beautiful, incredible show, Sweeney Todd. I hope you guys have a wonderful weekend. We will check you guys next time. Be safe. We love you all. Will, would you like to say anything to our audience? I'll quote uh, TJ2 and say, bye, everybody. All right. Um, he, yeah, he might be mad that you just stole his exit. <laughs> well, he's not here. I'm just borrowing it. I'll give it back when he shows up. All right. Thanks, guys. Have a great one. Mr. Todd? At your service. An honor to receive your patronage, my lord. You know me, sir. Who in this wide world does not know the great Judge Turpin? What may I do for you today, sir? Stylish trimming of the hair. Soothing skin massage. Sit, sir. Sit. You see, sir, a man infatuated with love, her ardent and eager slave. So fetch the pomade and pomade stone and lend me a more seductive tone, a sprinkling perhaps of French cologne. But first, sir, I think a shave. The closest I ever came. In a merry mood today, Mr. Todd. Tis your delights are catching fire from one man to the next. Tis true, so love can still inspire the blood to pound the heart leap higher. What more? What more can, can man, man require? More than love, sir. More than love, sir. What's her? Women. Ah, yes, women. Pretty women. Something in them cheers the air.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 